0: Well, good morning. My name is Blake, and we are in a series called Questioning Christianity, but I want you to know this is actually a parenthesis in what we normally do. Our normal MO here at Southside is just to work through books of the Bible. So we'll hit a passage, and the next week the next passage, and the next week the next passage. That's really what we believe in and what we really found our church upon is the consecutive exposition of Scripture. But we are taking a rare break this fall and doing a more topical series on key objections to the Christian faith. And this morning... Probably out of the whole series is going to be a little bit more academic, uh, a lot more academic. There'll be one other one, the problem of evil. That'll be a little more heavy, but that's all right. It's okay on occasion to double click and get down and go deep in a way that we normally can't on a Sunday morning. So last week we answered the objection: Aren't Christians hypocrites? And we answered basically, Yeah, Jesus came to save hypocrites. You should join us. And this week we we're asking: Aren't Christians anti-science? Aren't they those that just bury their head in the sand? Aren't they those that are just really about faith and not about evidence? Aren't faith and science at odds? I mean, I think that's what most people think. I think most people think you have to choose between science or faith. You have those those white-collar, educated, rational people who take science seriously, and then you have the hillbilly homeschool mom with missing teeth that doesn't really take science seriously, rocks the full denim dress, makes her own butter. But that's not the case, as we're going to see. And I want us to begin our time together by looking at God's clear word, very first verse in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And let's just read the first verse Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And the earth. And I want us to see that it's precisely because of our view of the creator and the created order that we do actually take science very seriously. So I want us to answer this objection with three main points. And the first one is this. Outside of the Christian worldview, the scientific endeavor makes no sense. Just consider for a moment what the atheistic view of the world entails. It's founded upon evolution. It is the great alternative. And when I say evolution this morning, I don't mean microevolution. I think we all agree in microevolution, change within a species. But when I say evolution, I'm talking about macroevolution, the idea that we came from the Big Bang and evolved from a different species, evolved from apes. That's what I mean when I'm saying evolution this morning. And remember what they believe. They believe that all there is is stuff. Some of it's more evolved than others, but at the end of the day, it's just stuff. It's material. That's why they're often called materialist or naturalist. There is nothing beyond the material, physical world. They do not believe in anything they cannot see or feel. And so there's really no difference in essence between me and this metal pulpit. No ontological difference. I may be more evolved, but it's all just impersonal matter in motion. Brain, no thoughts. Body, no spirit, no soul. It's just time plus chance acting on impersonal matter. That's what atheism, that's what evolution is founded upon. So if this is true, then this world is driven by random chance. There would be no basis for science. The scientific endeavor requires several things. It requires a universe of order. It requires uniformity of nature. In a chance random universe, nature is not uniform. Nature would be totally random, and so we would have no basis to do science. We would have no basis to think that antitoxins we use today would not poison us tomorrow. There would be no basis to assume that the future would be like the past, which would totally negate the validity of the scientific method. According to them, the past doesn't prove that the future will be the same unless it were controlled in some uniform way. But we believe as Christians that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We believe in a God who created an orderly world. And he has said that seed time and harvest summer and winter will continue until history is no more. And so we believe in the uniformity of nature and we have a reason to believe so because of the providence of God. This is why historically Christian theism, Christianity is actually the garden from which modern science grew because it espoused a world of form and design, an orderly world because God is a personal God of order. And so Christianity provided the framework out of which the scientific endeavor could grow. Because of the nature of our creator, our world is characterized by regularity and order. It is not a chance random universe. We can expect that the future would be like the past. We can expect the predictability of events. The natural world is full of regularities, which is key to describing them and making formulas and theories about them. Here's how one author put it. He puts, he knows that there are 10 variables needed for science. Again, this is the basis for science. And he says, Christianity provides all 10 in a way that atheism does not. Number one, The physical universe is a distinct objective reality. We teach that there's a distinction between the creation and the creator. That's important. Number two, the laws of nature exhibit order, patterns, and regularity. Number three, the laws of nature are uniform throughout the physical universe. Number four, the physical universe is intelligible. We can understand it. Number five, the world is good, valuable, and worthy of careful study. Number six, because the world is not divine and therefore not a proper object of worship, it can be an object of rational study. Number seven, human beings possess the ability to discover the universe's intelligibility. We'll get to that a little bit later. Number eight, the free agency of the creator makes the empirical method, again, what science is founded upon, it makes it necessary Number nine, God encourages, even propels science through his imperative to humans to take dominion over nature. And number ten, finally, the intellectual virtues essential to carrying out the scientific enterprise are part of what God commands his people. And so what we want to ask before we talk is which view of the world, which worldview provides the basis for Science. Which view of the world makes sense of this reality? Again, science grew out of the Christian framework because it provides a better basis for human beings to pursue science. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So evolution itself doesn't require what's needed to do science. Second point is that belief in evolution requires faith. Oftentimes you'll see, and I think part of it is because the media needs an antagonist and a protagonist, but you'll see science and faith pitted against one another as if they can't go together. What I want to show is actually the most ardent evolutionists and atheists actually requires a whole lot of faith. You've got to replace the story of creation with something, and they do so with evolution. Those committed to materialism or naturalism, they hold to doctrine just like you hold to doctrine. One of their doctrines is this, that we cannot find truth apart from science. But that's a doctrine. It's a doctrine that says we can't find truth apart from science, but it undercuts itself, right? Because show me from science where we can learn that only science can provide truth. Show me from nature that we can only learn truth through nature. It's a doctrine that actually undermines itself. It has no proof. It is self-referentially incoherent. It's contradictory. Science can't prove that science is the only source of truth. That requires faith in science. So atheism is more than just science. This is one of the main things I want us to take away. More than science is involved. It is a secular religion. It is a worldview before it is just and objective looking at evidence. It is a way of viewing the world. It's a comprehensive grid through which they perceive reality and interpret life. Atheists interpret life. They look at the evidence through the lens of atheism. They never take those off. The way Cornelius Van Til put it was, all is yellow to the jaundiced eye. And I love the, the honesty here of one uh, Harvard University biologist, Richard Lewontin. Listen to what he says. He says, the scientific community has an a priori commitment. It means beforehand. They've got a commitment. They've got an assumption. They've got a presupposition beforehand. That's what a priori means. So the scientific community, he says, they've got this a priori commitment to materialism, the idea that all there is is a material. Notice what he just said. He says they have faith in a certain view of the world. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us To accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes. And notice this he says, we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. I love the honesty here. I wish more were this honest. So we're not talking about supposed scientific facts. We're talking about ideologies. We're talking about worldviews. We're talking about philosophies. At the end of the day, we're talking about a religion. That's what evolution has become. It has become an all-encompassing theory. All is yellow to the jaundiced eye. So they are first committed to naturalism, to materialism, to evolution, whatever we want to call it and then therefore are persuaded by actually very little evidence. Richard Dawkins, one of the most popular atheists of our day, he's the high priest of the new atheism, he says that even if there were no evidence, he would have a better foot to stand on than Christianity. Another evolutionist, I want to quote quite a bit from from their own, another one, Michael Ruse, he admits that evolution's a religion. Again, I appreciate the honesty. Here's what he says. He says, evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion. This is an atheist admitting this. A full fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. I am an ardent evolutionist as a, and an ex Christian, but I must admit this one complaint the literalists, and by that he means those who believe in creation, they're absolutely right. Evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is true of evolution still today. Evolution, therefore, came into being as a kind of secular ideology, an explicit substitute for Christianity, end quote. I love his honesty again. What the point, remember, is that evolution requires faith as well. It, too, is a religion that requires faith. A lot of ways we could go with this. We've got 35 minutes. Let's just consider the story of the beginning of the universe. The origin question, how did we get here? This is something that everybody's got to answer. How did we get here? How can a self come from stuff that is as selfless as a stone? How does life come from non-life? To say nothing can produce something is a leap of faith. So we got to understand when we start talking about the origin of the world, we are leaving the realm of science and entering the realm of ideology. Science knows of no chain of events that started without a beginning, no spontaneous generation. But they try, right? Some say that the laws of physics created the world. Where did the world come from? The laws of physics. Anytime anything is proposed, though, the next question is what? Where did they come from? Laws don't create. There's no evidence for that. That's a grand leap of faith. One of my favorites, again, is Dawkins. Dawkins says, uh, he admits that there is increasingly design being found all over the place, from everything from the galaxies to the DNA strands. And so he says, you know what could have happened is that there was a civilization, much like ours, through the same evolutionary process that he believes in, became so evolved that it seeded onto Earth life. And that then would explain all the design we see. And so you, have a, you can say, okay, well, let's believe in faith in a creator or faith in aliens. And Dawkins chooses aliens that seeded life onto this planet. Of course, since Edwin Hubble realized that the universe did, in fact, have a beginning back in the 20s, the Big Bang is the most popular theory. The nothing hypothesis. What caused the Big Bang? Nothing. But rational people must admit, this doesn't work. It doesn't work scientifically. It doesn't work philosophically. It doesn't work experientially. Here's how Francis Collins puts it. Francis Collins was an atheist. He worked on the Human Genome Project, and he became a Christian, but he still believes in a form of evolution. Here's what he says. He says, The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that, end quotes. So evolution requires faith as well. It has to believe that somehow non-life became life. It has to believe that somehow non-intelligence became intelligence. They believe some pretty miraculous things. It requires a leap of faith. So the point is, it's not science or faith. It is science and faith for everybody. They're not foes, they're friends. The third reason I want to spend most of our time here is why evolution just doesn't work. Why evolution fails as a worldview. And I want us to consider five reasons why it does not work. Five reasons for the bankruptcy of evolution. Hopefully we'll be out of here by dinner. Let's get to work. First one, and I think one of the strongest ones, is that evolution cannot account for morality. It can't account for ethics, for right and wrong. Again, from their perspective, they're forced to admit this. There is no basis for right or for wrong. There is no ought, only is. Moral opinions are just neurochemistry. Denouncements of right and wrong are reduced to chemical relationships. In the genes caused by different evolutionary needs in the physical environment, everything has to be explained through the use and effect of chance genetic mutations and natural selection. So the difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler? Can't say anything beyond them. It's merely chromosomal makeup. Like me, if I had a Dr. Pepper and a Mountain Dew, and I shook them up, one would fizz this way, one would fizz another way, what basis would I have to call one right and one wrong? got Hitler, Mother Teresa. I think Mother Teresa would be the Dr. Pepper in this analogy. (laughs) It's just fizzing one way. You don't call it right or wrong. It just is. Now they try though. They try. Now some atheists will call, say that ethics is defined through our culture, through social conventions. And so good is defined as the well-being or the happiness of society. And that may work in nice Western cultures like ours. But what about those cultures where the majority has decided something like cannibalism is right? The majority believe it. Who are you to say it's wrong? Or what about those cultures where, when a husband dies, a widow is forced to jump on his burning ashes? The majority of that culture has decided that's right. If good is defined by the culture, how are you going to say that's wrong? Or what about, what about uh, Muslims who take their call to jihad seriously? That culture thought that 9-11 was righteous. That whole culture. So if culture determines good or bad, who are you to say your culture is better than their culture? It just does not work. We all agree that all of those are evil, but according to the evolutionary framework, it's just opinion you just happen to think your culture's better because you were raised that way. If you were raised in their culture, you would think their culture was better. And there's no way to judge either externally if there is no objective standard. And my submission is that's just not livable. And the other thing is if morality was just created by culture, the well-being of the society, there would be no reason for what we would call the moral reformer. Just to take an example, William Wilberforce, one of the sole voices Advocating for the abolition of slavery in his day. The majority of the culture was for it. So, according to the evolutionary framework, he should have just kept his mouth shut. He was in the wrong to try to buck the majority. Same with Martin Luther King Jr. in the Civil Rights Society. If good and evil is just based upon the culture, it's just that, it's just opinion. It doesn't work. In fact, the problem goes deeper because evolution, by its very nature, is brutal. It is violence. Natural selection, strong eat the weak. Which is why Eric Harris, one of the Columbine shooters, was wearing a t-shirt that said natural selection on it at the time of all of the murder. Here's how one English author puts it, Francis Bufford he puts it this way. The moral scandal of evolution is that it works by works through and would not work without continuous suffering. Suffering is not incidental to evolution. Suffering is the method. The world wobbles onward, you might say, on a trackway paved with little bones. But that understates the issue. There is no trackway. There's just the way the world happens to go, lurching one way, lurching the other. The whole landscape is little bones because nature exploits the weak. Natural selection is utterly indifferent to the suffering of the weak. And so murder or rape or robbery, they're natural according to evolutionary theory. This is what drove Adolf Hitler. So Hitler, the way he would have officers promote was usually through violence, sometimes through death. No one would intervene. You couldn't intervene. Some of the Nazi propaganda he would use to try to get in the minds of his soldiers was was beetles battling to show Natural selection, to illustrate the survival of the fittest, the strongest. Natural selection is ruthlessly selfish. It is feed, flee, fight, reproduce at whatever cost. We just do our part to do whatever we can, including oppressing the weak, for our own benefit, for our own slice of time. This is where, and again, it's rare to find a consistent atheist, but this is where, according to their view, rape is just an evolutionary strategy for maximizing reproductive success. It's just alpha males being alpha males. It's consistent with natural selection. Here's how one atheist psychologist puts it. He says, human rape appears not as an aberration, but as an alternative gene promotion strategy that is most likely to be adopted by the losers in the competitive harem-building struggle." It's not an aberration, he says. It's just an alternative. He says, if the means of access to legitimate consenting sex is not available, then a male may be faced with the choice between force or genetic extinction. And remember, the whole premise of natural selection is that the very worst thing that could happen is genetic extinction. That is maddening. That is wicked. That is evil. And it doesn't work, at least for those of us with daughters. We call that evil because the God of creation calls it evil. But again, here's the point. Atheism has no basis. Atheism has no basis to call anything good or evil. All becomes just mere opinion with no outside authority. It can't account for morality. second reason it's bankrupt is it can't account for rationality and for truth. All of our knowledge and all of our reason depends on the validity of reasoning, right? Of using and trusting your mind. But remember... According to evolution or to materialism, all there is is the material. All that matters is matter. There's nothing beyond it. So we have brains, but we don't have truth. That would be an abstract idea. We don't have abstract in this worldview, just chemical processes. You don't actually have a spirit. You don't actually have thoughts. You just have chemical processes according to this view. You just have electrochemical events in the gray matter making you think that you think, but thinking is actually no different than the grass growing. The laws of logic are not found in nature, right? They're abstracts. They don't grow somewhere. They can't be placed under a microscope. Abstract concepts become impossible with evolution because they are by their nature abstract. They're not material. They're not concrete. So you can't even think. You can't even reason. There There is no such thing as truth. And according to the atheist, you are materially determined to believe what you believe. You didn't have any choice in the matter. Which is why Charles Darwin himself, he wrote to a friend, quote, Within me, the horrid doubts, this is called Darwin's Doubt, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Trustworthy. I mean, do you trust monkeys? There was an experience about a decade ago by some English researchers, and they put these monkeys uh, with a computer. Let's see what happens. Let's put them in there and see what happens. And after a month, there was not a single word typed. They really just threw rocks at the computer and turned it into an outhouse. It's about as far as they got. And Darwin admits, how could we trust? And so here's what the atheist ends up doing. He uses his rationality to create a view of the world that nullifies the use of his own reason. It's like climbing up a tree, climbing onto a branch, taking the saw, and sawing off the very tree limb you're sitting on. Here's how another atheist puts it. Thomas Nagel says, Evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities that undermines their reliability, and in so doing, undermines itself. If we can't trust the minds that gave us evolution, then evolution undermines itself. There can be no truth. And once we lose absolute truth, evolution is no longer true. Again, it's self-referentially incoherent. It's like using logic to try to refute the laws of logic. It's like me speaking Spanish telling you I don't speak Spanish. It's like me telling you that my brother is an only child. It doesn't work. But... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is a rational God, and he created us in his image to be rational creatures, to think his thoughts after him. And so we can use and we can trust our minds to arrive at truth that is absolute. And so if you're a skeptic here, don't use the mind God gave you to try to reason your way out of trusting him, out of a relationship with him, out of submission to him. You're sawing off your own tree limb. It's kind of like the little girl who's slapping her daddy in the face. While she's having to sit on his lap to reach his face, it can't account for truth. It can't account for rationality. Thirdly, it can't account for science. Again, lots could be said, but first, let me mention the idea of what uh, one author, Michael Behe, calls irreducible complexity. Now, in the time of Darwin, things were, and science has changed quite a bit since the time of Darwin, he didn't have an electron microscope. The cell, he thought, was pretty simple. It was just a black box, basically. But now we know all sorts of things about it. And one of those things is it cannot be reduced any further and still function. It just would not work. It could not have evolved over time. It had to have come as is or it wouldn't do its job. A system of coordinated parts can only work after all the pieces are in place. Meaning it had to have arrived simultaneously simultaneously or it wouldn't have worked, not over a gradual process. He gives the illustration of a mousetrap. Remove any part of a mousetrap and it no longer works, right? Like if you take off that, I don't know what you call the piece of a mousetrap, that metal bar that, you know, snaps mice neck, that thing, you take it off, it doesn't work anymore, right? It doesn't evolve, it's just there. It has to be all together. Again, listen to Darwin himself. If it could be demonstrated... That any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Things like the eyeball or the cell, irreducibly complex. First thing. Second thing is there's just a lack of scientific evidence. There's actually very little scientific empirical evidence for macroevolution. There's just the same old grab bag that you find in public biology school textbooks like the finches, the finches on the Galapagos Island in South America, which was just minor adaptation that allowed survival in dry weather. That's what we call microevolution, an adaptation that allowed finches to remain finches and just live in a different condition. They didn't change species. Or the fruit flies. Maybe maybe your textbook growing up had the fruit flies, where you had some with two and then you had some with four wings. Challenge is those second set that second set of wings didn't have any muscle. It was actually a mutation, a defect, made it harder to survive. It's a terrible example of natural selection. Or the peppered moths in England. I've got a picture here for you of the peppered moths. Maybe you saw this one. You can't hardly see the one on the left, but the idea was, look, it evolved from a lighter color over to the darker color. Well, as history would have, well, we actually found out that's dark because of factory smoke and soot. Add to that, they don't actually perch openly on trees like this. This was a staged photo. These were both dead and glued to a log and make it into textbooks. Turns out that scientific fact is sometimes neither scientific nor fact. Maybe most famously is Ernest Haeckel's embryos, biology's most famous fraud. Uh, Turns out Haeckel admitted that he was going from memory and he took license to try to show this. In actual fact, the embryos are much different than this. But this, hopefully, is not in current day textbook. It's been shown to be bogus. He was a fraud, he distorted reality for his own agenda. And then Darwin himself acknowledged probably the most damaging evidence for his theory of evolution was the discontinuous nature of the fossil record. He hoped more would come. He had faith. Hundred years of hunting and paleontology is throwing in the towel. So much of what we see from the fossil record is inference, not evidence. Faith, not fact. The fossil record does not show species gradually transforming from one kind to another. There is no record of incremental changes. Each kind we have, it appears all at once, fully formed. Why would that be the case? This is paleontology's hidden secret. And then third, the issue of fine-tuning. The earth is utterly unique. The rest of the known universe is hostile to life but Earth is full of finely calibrated laws and forces. Protons and neutrons stay together to form atoms. We have liquid water. We're just the right distance from the sun. We have oxygen, nitrogen, atmosphere, the size of the moon, the correct location in the galaxy, the type of star, the thick enough crust, the magnetic field, the electromagnetic forces, carbon production in stars, the proton-neutron difference, gravity. Earth is clearly the privileged planet. Here again is how world-renowned scientist Francis Collin puts it. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and the weak nuclear force, et cetera, that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, The universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people, end quote. And so what explains the fact that Earth is so clearly privileged, the fine-tuning of the universe? There's so much we could say. Some say, well, there were probably zillions and zillions of universes, and probably most of them didn't get it right, but we just so happened to get it right. Maybe, but again, that's a leap of faith. There's no evidence for such, and there's no way of knowing such. Again, it's not science, it's faith. Fourth reason for evolution's bankruptcy is it cannot account for human dignity. Again, remember, according to their view, humans are no different than apes, no different than mice, no different than cockroaches, just bigger brains. We're all just animals, right? We don't have funerals for cockroaches. The world just wobbles on with its path paved with little bones. Rid the world of the weak. And so for them, things like abortion or euthanasia, they're good because they move the human race on. Get rid of the weak. Get rid of the inconvenient. Which, by the way, again, it's what drove Adolf Hitler to rid the world of Jews. He believed it would help natural selection move on. It's why Planned Parenthood, plants their offices in urban poor neighborhoods because they're racist and they want to rid the world of African-Americans. It's totally consistent with natural selection, though. No room for human dignity. Our culture is so sideways in this stuff. We save trees and kill babies. But Christians believe in the dignity of every human being. Because we've all been made in God's image, regardless of size, location, ethnicity, mental or physical capacity or convenience. Genesis 1 3 says that we are the made in the image of God. We are the climax, the crown of creation, the apex. We're not ex-apes. We're the apex of creation. Here's how Pastor Tim Keller put it. He says, to hold that human beings are the product of nothing but the evolutionary process of the strong eating the weak, but then to insist that nonetheless every person has a human dignity to be honored is an enormous leap of faith against all the evidence to the contrary. And that's the point. It's a leap of faith that actually can't uphold for human dignity. We're no different than animals, and we need to get rid of those that are weak in our estimation according to their view. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So evolution gives no basis for human dignity. And then fifth, evolution cannot account for purpose, for meaning in life. Can't account for beauty. Beauty just becomes a neurological response to certain data. Cannot account for love. It's just a biochemical need we need so that we can reproduce and spread our seed and extend and preserve our tribe. In fact, monogamy is actually at odds with evolution. Let me quote an article from the New York Times. They say, We've long known that men have a genetic evolutionary impulse to cheat because that increases the odds of having more of their offspring in the world. The more sexual partners you have, the greater your potential reproductive success, in quotes acid it's the universal acid that kills all truth claims atheist Daniel Dennett admits of such he says it spreads through every field of study corroding away at all transcendence it corrodes away at all purpose it, tran- it corrodes away at all transcendent morality so when taking taken consistently evolution leads to despair it's a religion of despair there's no positive reason to live just live for yourself and then die. But again, the biblical worldview makes sense of all this. It makes sense of our purpose. We're here to glorify God. It takes care of our meaning. It makes sense of everything. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He says, I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything. As we've seen, some of the leading atheists are actually not committed to science. They're not actually committed to following the evidence. To quote from earlier, they cannot allow a divine foot in the door. They do not want God to exist. And they've built careers by trying to show that he doesn't. Romans 1 actually teaches us this. Let me read from Romans chapter 1. The issue is not evidence. The issue is unbelief. God has shown everyone that He exists. We just don't like it apart from the grace of Christ. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Clearly perceived. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This chapter is very clear that all people know that God exists, but those who have not received the grace of Christ suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And the Bible here says, if this is you, friend, that the wrath of God is revealed against such unrighteousness. But praise God, Christianity is founded upon good news. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. In fact, it's not the end of Romans. Romans will go on from chapter 1, 2, and 3 in showing just how fallen we are, that our fundamental problem is our sin against our creator. But it will go on in chapters 3, 4, 5, and really the rest of the book to show that through the substitutionary death of Christ, we can find life. We can have our sins forgiven. Here's how he puts it later in the book in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If that's you, friend, you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, let me urge you to do so. Let me urge you to consider Christ. He makes the most sense of science. He makes the most sense of our world. He makes the most sense of our experience. And most importantly, he solves our fundamental problem. We've got a debt that needs to be paid, that he has paid on the cross. If you're a believer here, I hope this is encouraging and encouraging you to praise God, praise him for his word, praise him for his work, praise him for his world. Let's respond and join all creation singing praise to our God and King. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth.